New Thinking Allowed, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is psychical research and parapsychology. My guest is Bernard Carr, who is Professor Emeritus of Mathematics and Astronomy at Queen Mary University of London. He received his doctorate at Trinity College, Cambridge, under the supervision of Stephen Hawking, whom he got to know rather well. In fact, he actually lived for a year in the Hawking household back in the early days of their relationship in the 1970s. Dr. Carr's specialty was looking at the primordial universe, in other words, the first second after the Big Bang. And he is co-author of the book, Quantum Black Holes. He is also editor of the anthology, Universe or Multiverse. And he is the recipient of the Adams Prize in Mathematics. He is a past president of the Society for Psychical Research in England, and he currently serves as president of the Scientific and Medical Network, an international organization largely focusing on consciousness research. This is an internet interview, and now I'll switch over to the Skype video. Welcome, Bernard. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Thank you, Jeff. You uh, served as president of the Society for Psychical Research, as as I recall, from 2000 to 2004. So, uh, but your immersion in in the field began much earlier. Well, I, I joined the Society for Psychical Research in about 1974, and then I joined the council. Um, a few years after that, and I had various roles in in the Society for Psychical Research before I I became president. Primarily, um, for example, I, I was the chairman of the of the research committee for a while, and and then I took over the role of education officer. So my function there was to organise conferences and study days, which I think I organised for about thirty five years. But my actual involvement in the subject goes back before that. Um, I started, my very first experiment was done when I was at school. I was at a boarding school called Harrow in, in England. And the first experiment I did was when I was about 16. And this was an experiment in which I asked about 100 participants to record their dreams over a period of something like 10 days. And the idea was to try and show that people could dream of each other. So A would dream of B and B would dream of A in the same circumstances. Or maybe A would dream of C and B would dream of C in the the same circumstances. So for 10 days, I had everybody recall their dreams. And then afterwards, I looked for these correlations. And in fact, it was, I claimed at the time we had tremendously significant results, you know, convincing proof of, of telepathy. The idea, of course, was to show that there was some sort of telepathic connection during dreams. And I even wrote an article because I was an editor of the school magazine called The Herovian, and, and I wrote some 
overblown article claiming this was overwhelming evidence for telepathy and things. But to be honest, it, it wasn't a very good experiment because, first of all, it was not very watertight because people could have colluded. There was nothing to stop people recording their dreams but deliberately colluding. Um, I don't think that happened in many cases, and I did think there were some interesting examples. But at least I... That was my interest in telepathy and, and the links between telepathy and dreams. So that was the, the very first experiment I did when I was at school. The, when I went to Cambridge, I, I joined the Cambridge Society for Psychical Research. I think the next experiment I did was my attempts to, to weigh the soul. And so I can briefly describe that if you're interested. The... I've been interested in the in the reports that when people died, their weights went down by a few ounces. This goes all the way back to the turn of the of the twentieth century. And I thought, well, if the soul really has weight, and if you believe in in astral bodies and the concept that when you dream, your astral body leaves your physical body then this would seem to suggest that your weight should go down by a few ounces. So it's a very simple idea. And and then the idea would be that when you woke up, your, your astral body would come back and your weight would go up. So I, I conducted these experiments over a, about a week at Addenbrooke's Hospital, in which basically I persuaded about a dozen of my friends to, to sleep on this special weighing device and to see whether their weight would indeed go up and down as they, as they fell asleep. Now, of course, the theoretical basis of this experiment was rather questionable. I mean, you have to assume that the soul has weight. You have to assume that whenever you dream, your, your soul actually leaves your body. So there are all sorts of reasons why the experiment might not have worked. But it was, it was great fun, and in fact, a lot of my undergraduate friends remember me as the person who weighed their souls. So, of course, people like to know, well, was it successful? At the time, again, I, I claimed that I did have some successes. I thought there were some occasions where the weight went down when somebody left, the, fell asleep and went up again when they woke up. In retrospect, I don't think it was a very convincing experiment. My, the apparatus I was using was really... It was concocted by me, and it wasn't very precise. I mean, nowadays you can weigh bodies to an accuracy of a few grams if you have a very expensive apparatus. But this was way back in 1972, and I just concocted some apparatus out of sort of bits of Meccano's. It was very crude. I didn't have a, a very sophisticated way of telling whether people fell asleep. I didn't have electroencephalographs or anything like that. I would merely say, are you awake? And if there was no reply, I would assume they were asleep. So it was really a very crude experiment. And to be honest, um, I never published it. I mean, I wrote up the report. And I later on, I did a more extended experiment the following year along the same lines. But I always thought it was a, a nice idea for an experiment because in principle, it was a simple experiment. I mean, to do it properly would be very expensive. And therefore, I, I always thought it was worth doing. And as I say, my friends always remember me as, as, as the person who, who weighed their soul. So I think it, it went down in the history, at least among my friends, as an interesting experiment.
It, it would seem to me that that experiment uh, exemplifies your interest in both physics and parapsychology. You're, you're sort of looking at the psychic phenomenon from the point of view that maybe there's a physical explanation. Well, absolutely. And, um, and I suppose it's because I was a physicist that I was interested in doing that sort of experiment. I mean, after all, if you even if you believe in the astral body or the soul or whatever you want to call it, there's no reason in principle why it should weigh anything. You know, the assumption that it has some weight could be wrong. Um, the original observation which prompted the experiment was the, I the, the fact that apparently people's weight would go down when they died by a few ounces. This was an experiment done by McDougall way back in 1904 or something. But actually, that wasn't a very convincing experiment either. There are all sorts of reasons why the, the weight of the body may go down. For all, all sorts of natural reasons why your, your weight may go down when you die. Uh, nevertheless, it, it always fascinated me if there's such a thing as an astral body, and I did explain in our first interview that I had even had experiences of that, and I'd read a lot about it, it was very natural to ask the question as a physicist, is this astral body actually physical? That's to say, does it have a weight? Could you photograph it? Would it have any physical influence? And of course, in the history of the subject, a, a lot of people have have done experiments to see if they can have a physical effect. Apart from trying to weigh the astral body, which is quite a, an original idea, people have tried to see if they, your astral body, you can leave your body and actually have a physical influence on the environment. And for example, I know that Alex Tannhaus, he did some experiments early in the 20th century where he would attempt to affect a strain gauge, for example. Um, I can remember one of the experiments done by Bob Morris, who became the cursed professor at Edinburgh. He, he did some experiments with um, Blue Harari, who could leave his body at will, with a cat. Maybe you know these experiments. And, and basically, uh, Harari would leave his body and, and try and influence the cat. And, they, and Bob Morris did some experiments to see if, if the times at which the cat was disturbed correlated with the times at which... Harari had, had left his body. So there are all sorts of ways in which you can try and test whether the, the, the astral body, if you believe in it, is something physical. Now, of course, a, a lot of skeptics will say, well, it's not, it doesn't exist at all. You know, it's just it's a figment of the imagination. There's no such thing as a soul. If you think you're going out of your body, you're just dreaming or hallucinating. If you really could have a physical mechanism for detecting the astral body, uh, then you, you will be showing that actually it isn't just the imagination because there really is a physical effect. And I would say after, you know, maybe a hundred years really of experimentation, I would say there is perhaps some evidence that it has physical effects. Nevertheless, my, my own conclusion is that whatever the astral body is, it's, it's not actually in the, in the a straightforward physical domain. I believe the out-of-body experience is exploring a, a level of reality, but I don't think it's ordinary physical space. And that doesn't mean it, the astral body can't have some physical effects, because uh, we, we know, of course, that psychic phenomena can sometimes have physical effects. But the point is, even if there's a physical effect, 
is it just a manifestation of psychokinesis, the ability of the mind to affect the physical environment, or is it really something like an astral body? So, for example, if I leave my, if I leave my body and I, and I travel 100 miles away and I witness something, does that mean that my astral body really is 100 miles away or am I just using clairvoyance? So often you have this dilemma. Do, do you attribute these phenomena to various psychic functions like clairvoyance or psychokinesis or do you attribute to, to the fact that really is there's a, there is this other space in which these other body, if you like, this subtle body can move? And, and I suppose it's not, it's not clear. It's interesting to me in our one of our previous discussions, you pointed out that it's very difficult when you're with other physicists to discuss this at all. They, the community of physicists is generally not interested in talking about consciousness, and yet at the same time, if we look at the history of the Society for Psychical Research, there have been a number of great physicists who, who were involved and who, like you, have served as the president. Absolutely. I mean, nowadays, the subject is very much dominated by psychologists or, or parapsychologists. But if you go back to the early days of the, of the Society for Psychical Research, you will find that it was very much dominated by physicists. I mean, one of the founders was um, William Barrett, a professor of physics. And if, if you go back to the, the, the early days, there were other physicists involved like um, Crookes, William Crookes, for example, and uh, Professor Raleigh, you know, William Strutt and his, his son, John Strutt. And there are a lot of physicists, J.J. Thompson, who was master of Trinity. So a lot of physicists were interested in the subject in the early days. And the reason for that was quite clear, that when the society was born, there was an interest in, in for example, spiritualistic phenomena, where there appeared to be physical manifestations. And I think a lot of the physicists were interested in was this evidence for some new type of physical force? Remember, in those days, we only knew about gravity and electromagnetism. So I think a lot of the physicists thought that maybe psychical phenomena are evidence for some new type of physics. And so in some sense, the interest in physics came first for them. And I would say that... Uh, after about the first, you know, by the time you get to the 1920s, the, the interest from the physics side has, has, has diminished somewhat, partly because people have become a little bit skeptical about some of the spiritualistic phenomena, but also because by then the psychologists were taking over. And, and of course, then Ryan came along with his school and, and, and the topic of parapsychology began. But in the early days, there was a lot of interest in physics. And uh, to some extent, the interest in physics, I would say, then began to revive again when you get to the 1970s. And then you have a few physicists who were, who were involved, who were presidents of the society, for example. Um, I was, of course, I was an astronomer. Before me, there was Archie Roy, and, uh, who was also an astronomer. 
and there was um, Freddie Stratton, who was an astronomer. Oddly enough, it's attracted a lot of astronomers. One of the early was was uh, Flammarion, who was an astronomer. For some reason, there's often been a link between not just physicists and parapsychology, but astronomers and, and, and parapsychology. So I seem to be following a trend in that respect. Now, now, the early physicists like Sir Oliver Lodge and Sir William Crookes, I think it would be fair to say they became spiritualists or at least convinced of uh, the spiritualist uh, worldview. Those, for those two people, it is true. Um, Crookes and Lodge very much became spiritualists. I mean, they were, of course, working at a time when spiritualism was very active and there were reasons. Lodge, of course... Uh, his son died in the First World War, and that got him interested in that. And, of course, we know Crookes um, was involved with the medium and and spent a lot of time studying the medium. Um, but I wouldn't say that was typical of the, all the members of the, the Society for Psychic Research in, in the early days. Um, although the society was very much born in the wake of the spiritualist movement and the interest in mesmerism and things like that, very soon a, div a division developed between the spiritualists and the, the psychical researchers because the psychical researchers were purporting to be a science, following a science, whereas the spiritualists, of course, were coming from a more religious background. I mean, they, they were convinced in survival um, that some of the early psychical researchers were certainly interested in survival um, but even the ones who were interested in survival weren't necessarily adopting a spiritualist stance if you take um, Henry Sidgwick one of the most important founders and a philosopher I, I think he became very disillusioned with the evidence for, for from spiritualism especially physical spiritualism because a lot of the physical sciences it was found could be due to fraud not necessarily all of them, and, and some of the great mediums even were known to get indulged occasionally in fraud. So I think some of the members of the society became a li little bit disillusioned. And that's one of the reasons, as I'm sure you know, there was a split between the spiritualists and the psychical researchers. But there's always been an interest in the Society for Psychical Research in the question of survival. Do, do our souls in some sense survive the death of the physical body. And certainly if you go back to the founders of the society like Frederick Myers, that was the, one of the key issues. Do we survive the death of the, the, the physical body? And of course, for people like Myers, the answer was yes. I mean, he very much, he firmly believed that. Um, but of course, nowadays when you, when you talk to parapsychologists, that isn't the predominant um, feeling. I mean, most parapsychologists are not particularly interested in, certainly not interested in spiritualism, and certainly not necessarily interested in, in even the issue of whether consciousness can survive the death of the of the body. But that's why the nature of the subject has changed. Nevertheless, certainly within the Society for Psychical Research, there is still quite a, a substantial body of people who are very interested in the question of survival, and. Uh, Personally, I am, I'm, I'm interested in the issue of survival. I'm not a spiritualist, but and and so I don't adopt the spiritualist view of survival. But I do personally think that the 
I do not believe that consciousness is generated by the brain. I, I believe that the brain is a, is, a, is a filter or a transmitter of consciousness rather than a producer of consciousness. And therefore, to me, it is, it is, you have to ask the question, therefore, when the brain dies, what happens to consciousness? Does consciousness, if consciousness isn't produced by the brain, what does that mean? And it seems to me you've, you've sort of got two views. You can either say, well, maybe your consciousness is, is still connected to some sort of subtle body so that when you die, your subtle body leaves the physical body. And so you're still in some sense have an individual identity, which may carry some of the memories of your, of your previous embodiment. Or you might have a more Eastern view, which says, well, maybe your consciousness, it, it, it still exists, but it sort of expands and becomes part of some greater cosmic consciousness, so you lose your, your individuality. Or, or maybe it's even both. Maybe, maybe you know, you, you, for a while you're in some subtle body and then later on you, you get absorbed into some, into some greater consciousness. And, of course, that, that's the sort of question psychical researchers are interested in. That's why they spend a lot of time studying the evidence for survival, be it through mediums or near-death experiences or... Um, cases of apparent reincarnation, Ian Stevenson's children. I've always seen it as actually a, a, a very important part of psychical research, whether something can survive the, the death of the brain, even though it is, it is not the mainstream view, I would say, within parapsychology, or even not the mainstream interest within, within parapsychology. I had an opportunity recently to interview a um, doctor of engineering, a fellow named uh, Alan Ross Huguenot, who who is an engineer and also a spiritualist medium. And he he raised the argument that the uh, law of conservation of matter and energy should apply to consciousness as well, that uh, therefore uh, we have to assume uh, consciousness survives. Well, I, I'm not sure that argument alone is valid. It, it actually sort of relates to the experiment I talked about earlier. You know, if you can weigh the soul, if the body's weight goes down, conservation of mass says there has to be some somewhere the mass has gone. So you might say that would be a potential argument if you, if the result, the experiment was positive. Um, I, I, I mean, I wouldn't argue on that argue, on those grounds alone that there has to be survival. It is true that the conservation of energy is a, is a fundamental tenet of physics. And so that raises the whole question of what is the nature of, if you believe in this subtle body, if you like, this subtle realm, what is the nature of that subtle body? And in what sense does it have energy? In what sense does the interaction of this subtle body with the physical world have to involve conservation of energy, which is what your colleague was talking about as an engineer? And that's an important question, because I would say that if the interactions from this other dimension, if you like, violated energy conservation, you really would have a problem. And, and I've always, when I ask if there's an extension of physics which accommodates psychic phenomena, I'm really saying which accommodates psychic phenomena in a way which doesn't violate 
the normal laws of physics. Because whatever theory you've got, you don't want to violate something like energy conservation. Of course, you're going to be, you're going to be violating some laws of, of conventional physics because you're obviously trying to expand physics. And if, if, like me, you want to adopt some effects from higher dimensions, obviously you're going to producing, you're going to be producing effects which may go beyond current physics. Nevertheless, one has to always bear in mind that the current laws of physics are confirmed with enormous precision. The theory of general relativity is, is, is confirmed through various astronomical observations to enormous precisions, you know, to one in 10 to the 12 places of decimals. The laws of quantum theory are, are, are confirmed again to enormous precision, one in 10 to the 12 or something. So you, whatever your model is, you mustn't violate those laws. Now, you could always say that this other realm, the realm, if you like, that the, the, the consciousness may go to after death, has no connection with physics whatsoever. And then you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about conservation of energy. If you're just floating off in some other realm, it, it, it's not going to have any interaction. But the problem with that is there does seem to be some interaction if you believe in psychic phenomena. I mean... If, if you believe in, in for example, a, a poltergeist effect, th there does seem to be some effect on the physical world. Now, whether that interaction comes from the, the consciousness of a spirit or the consciousness of a human living agent, which is what most parapsychologists would think, um, it, it, that doesn't matter in this context. In either, in either case, there is an interaction between consciousness of a spirit or a living agent with the physical world, and that is producing physical effects. If you believe in poltergeist phenomena, it is producing, uh, it is making objects move. Possibly objects even appear and disappear. And that's where you have to be really careful because you, you've got to be consistent with the laws of physics. And to me, in fact, the most interesting psychic phenomena are precisely those which do inter involve some direct interaction between matter and mind. That's where the challenge comes. You see, there, there are many phenomena which could be purely mental. I mean, telepathy could just be a purely mental phenomena with no direct interaction with physics. Consciousness could have nothing to do with physics. Even clairvoyance need not have anything directly to do with physics if it's all in, in some other domain. An, an out-of-body experience, if, it, if it, it could just be on the level of mind. But the problem is that there are some phenomena in psychical research which do involve an interaction with physics. I mean, let's just take a simple example. An out-of-body experience might be just in your mind and therefore have no interaction with physics. If you levitate, okay, if your body starts levitating, or, or if I focus on a wine glass and the wine glass starts levitating, that's an interaction with physics. And, and, and after all, to levitate and to have an out-of-body experience might feel rather similar, but it makes a huge difference in terms of physics. You've got to make sure that this is 
compatible with the laws of physics because I am a physicist and 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 I'm not going to believe a theory which says that energy conservation law is wrong. You can take something like a, an apparition. Uh, lots of people see ghosts and you can say that the ghost in some sense is veridical in the sense that many people may see it. It might be a collective apparition or the ghost may convey some information. So you could still say it's, it's, it's in some sense got a reality, but that doesn't mean it has anything to do with physics. Doesn't physics now recognize information as a physical entity? It's true that in our final theory of physics, it's clear that information is going to play an important role. But, of course, when physicists say that, they're not normally thinking of, of psychic phenomena. They're not even necessarily thinking of mental phenomena. I mean, information is there being used in a, in a very in a technical sense. But I do think the fundamental theory of physics, which is going to relate to psi, clearly must involve information because it's, it's dealing with it's linking matter and mind, which obviously does involve information. But the point I was making about apparitions is that if it's just information, maybe that doesn't necessarily involve physics. But if you can, if you can photograph a ghost, for example, and I'm not sure you can, but if you can photograph a ghost, then it's something physical. It's making an imprint on a film. If you believe in a poltergeist, as I said before, the poltergeist is having a physical effect. And, and therefore, again, it's, it's the interaction between mind and the physical world, which is to me such a challenge. And you're right that information does come into it because um, when you talk about psychokinesis, for example, how can the mind, if the mind can have a, an effect on a physical object, like affecting the roll of a dice, or if it can levitate a wine glass, for example, how can you explain that? And I would like to give an answer which relates to what you were saying about information. I think the most plausible way of trying to explain psi is to, uh, PK, rather, not psi, psychokinesis is, of course, a very specific form of psi, an active effect on the world. Um, there, is, there is an idea which I think goes back to someone called Matic, a physicist Matic in the 70s, and he said, well, if consciousness is interacting with the, the physical world, maybe it uh, influences physical objects by information transfer. And the picture is quite simple. I mean, let's imagine we have an object. It consists of atoms, and the atoms are all moving randomly. Now, if you were to pump in information to those atoms and make them all move in the same direction, the object would move. Now, of course, that doesn't happen normally because all the millions of atoms move in different directions, so the macroscopic object doesn't move. But if you were to give information and say to each atom, move in this direction, the object would move macroscopically. And so what Matter did was he was able to say, well, let's imagine that the brain, whether it's a brain or consciousness, is merely transferring information. Then the, he could relate PK to the information output. And in fact, he related the information output to the, to the brain because we know something about 
the brain and the rate at which it can generate information. And I thought it was a beautiful model in the sense that it did give a, a, a ballpark estimate for the possible magnitude of a PK effect. So, you know, you would find that you could move a, a billiard ball, but you couldn't move a mountain. And of course, I'm not saying that's the correct explanation, but remember this was at a period when people were interested in, in the relationship between quantum theory um, and parapsychology. So this was, if you like, a particular example of how information transfer uh, could be relevant to PK. So, so your earlier question about if, is, if information is crucial to physics, could this be important? I think the answer is yes, certainly it would be according to Mattock. Bear in mind, of course, that most of my physics colleagues don't believe in PK anyway, so they would say there's no need to invoke information transfer. But always in this discussion, I, I'm taking the view that there are real phenomena which we're trying to explain. Uh, you've used the word believe several times, believe in PK or believe in poltergeist, but the normal scientific approach is to look at the data. And I would have to say, yeah, if, if one looks at the data, there's a lot of empirical evidence uh, for poltergeists and for macro-psychokinesis. I would say that too. On the other hand, especially when I'm talking to my skeptical physics colleagues, I'm always a bit cautious. And what I say, I say in psychical research, I never believe or disbelieve anything, absolutely. I mean, I, that's true of everything. I mean, I believe that in physics as well, but especially in psychical research. So when people say, do you really believe in psi? Um, I have to say, well, you know, psych is a very generic term. It covers a multitude of sins. And obviously you have to say, well, I, do you believe in telepathy? Do you believe in clairvoyance? Do you believe in precognition? Do you believe in psychokinesis? I mean, to each of those questions, you might have a different answer. And generally speaking, I find that people, even in the subject, they have a boggle threshold. You know, they, they're prepared to believe some things, but not other things. Now, you can ask me, for example, and I can say, um, well, telepathy, um, I, I'm not going to say definitely exists or definitely it doesn't exist. I, I'm prepared to make a bet. I'm prepared to give you a, a probability. So I'm prepared to say 90% that I, I believe in telepathy, okay? So I'm not saying I could be wrong, but uh, that's what I'm saying. I will bet you 90% that telepathy is real. And that's on the basis of experience, but also on the basis of literature. If you take something um, uh, like psychokinesis, that is, that is more difficult to reconcile with physics and so i would give that a somewhat lesser probability i mean i might say i believe that to to 60 percent you know because um obviously physicists are more skeptical about that when you look at some of the alleged physical phenomena especially in the early days of searching with mediums we know some of it was due to fraud um nevertheless i do think the experiment experimental evidence is 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 good and even the evidence from things like poltergeists. So I, I would say I, I, I will bet on that, but not quite as strongly as I would believe on, I, I would bet on telepathy. Precognition to me is the most fascinating phenomena. Um, but again, it's such a challenge to standard physics that I have to go a little bit, I have to be a little bit more cautious on that. So maybe I, I will bet that to 50%. On the other hand, there are certain other phenomena which I'm completely skeptical of, you know, like 
pyramid power. I'm going to put that way down at 5%. And, and I'm not into astrology and I'm not into UFOs and things like that. So everybody will have their own biases. But I think the safest, the safest policy is to say in a subject as controversial as this, not to say I definitely believe this or I definitely don't believe this. I just have an opinion, you know, a, a degree of belief. I mean, you, you asked me about being belief. It is a degree of belief, which to some extent reflects my prejudice of physicists. To some extent, it reflects my the experiences I've had. And to some extent, it, it, it reflects the, the degree, you know, to which I've read the literature. I mean, the point is, when I talk to my physics colleagues, they don't believe in these phenomena. But that's fine. I mean, they don't believe in them because they haven't studied the literature or they haven't had the experience. And that's fine. I mean, because, you know, if you're studying physics, you have to be completely devoted to physics. Really, You can't spend all your, a lot of time reading all the literature on psychical research. Most people we know um, don't have regular psychic experiences. I mean, a lot of them people have them occasionally. And so I'm at the end of the day, if people aren't interested in psychic phenomena because they haven't read the literature and they haven't had the experience, that's fine. The, and I've never felt I have to proselytize. I've never felt that I have to try and persuade my skeptical physics colleagues because I'm actually not really interested in, in, in doing that. I mean, I'm interested, I'm interested in, in studying the phenomena myself, but I don't want to convert the world. I mean, there are plenty of people who want to do that. Um, and so I, but what does upset me is when I find people who have not read the literature and have not had the experiences and say, it's rubbish. It can't be true. And of course, we know about that. I won't name them. There are plenty of these, these arch skeptics, or I call them pseudo skeptics, because you should always be skeptical in a certain sense. But these are the, if you like, the, the the people who are never going to change their views, and they're going to say these phenomena cannot be real because it goes against common sense, it goes against physics and everything else. So I get upset when people dismiss phenomena. In other words, they give them zero probability based on some theoretical prejudice. But I don't get upset when people say that they, they don't have time to look at the phenomena. In a funny way... Mm, in a funny way, Jeff, I, I prefer it that not every all my physics colleagues believe in these phenomena because at the moment the, there's only a small subset of physicists who actually can study these phenomena, you know, maybe the, who are interested in these phenomena, who are interested in actually having physical theories aside, maybe just a, a hand, hundred, say, in the world. And that's great because it means there's a small number of us who are trying to work out a theory of physics to accommodate psi. Now contrast that with mainstream physics, where you, you might have 10,000 physicists trying to explain some observation, you know, to do with um, coalescing black holes, detecting gravitational waves, or trying to explain the dark matter. Every time someone has an, an idea, you can be sure there'll be another 100 physicists having the same idea and trying to get a paper on the archives before anyone else. It's very competitive. I like the, the fact that Paraphysics, if you like, is a very small community. I like the fact there are only a few of us working in the field because that means I can keep up with the literature, I can know everybody. 
if mainstream physics started believing these phenomena were real, there would be thousands of people writing papers on it immediately. And that would mean one would be completely overwhelmed trying to keep up with the literature. There'll be endless fights arguing, you know, which theory is the correct one. And that's why, from a personal point of view, I quite enjoy the fact that it's a small field. I quite enjoy the fact that not many people, not many physicists believe it, because it means it's a calm field, which isn't frenetic. I, I have a question for you. I've been puzzled by this. You mentioned that uh, there are other astronomers who have been involved in, in the field, and you yourself are a professor of astronomy. And, and in spite of the fact that the society has investigated so many different questions, particularly about survival, it seems odd to me that there hasn't been uh, much of an interest in UFOs and its relationship to uh, parapsychology. Well, of course, there has been an interest among some members of the society in UFOs. I mean, clearly, um, if you're interested, for example, in, in apparitions, that there is a link, you could say there is a link between UFOs, you might say UFOs are sort of in the, you know, in the Middle Ages, people saw angels or demons. And you could argue that nowadays when people see um, aliens, that's the, the equivalent. But that's on the assumption, of course, that what you're dealing with is illusory in some sense, an hallucination. But it's interesting you mention UFOs because as an astronomer, I personally will bet that the galaxy is teeming with life. In other words, I do not think we are unique. I do not think the planet Earth is unique. I, I suspect, we, we know of course there's a there's 100 billion stars in the galaxy and, and we now know that most of those stars have got planetary systems. We've, we're now de we've now detected thousands of planets. Of course, most of them may not have life, but I bet you that there are I, again, bet I say bet because it's only a belief. I can't prove it. But I will bet you we are not unique in the galaxy. I bet you that there are thousands, if not millions, of planetary systems within the galaxy which could harbor intelligent life. And therefore, it is not implausible that that life will, will try to visit us. I mean, after all, that's what we, we, we're talking about doing, visiting other star systems. And therefore, I don't, in principle, regard the, the existence of UFOs as implausible. I, I don't see why there shouldn't be aliens out there. The normal argument is that they can't get to us because it's too far away, you know, and it, and it, it takes too long to get there. But that's not a very convincing argument, because after all, we now know there may be ways of, you know, there might be wormholes, there may be ways even of going faster than the speed of light. Um, Actually, when I was very young, uh, when I was about eight, nine or ten, I read the books on by Adamski, who claimed to have not only photographed the, the UFOs, he claimed to have made contact with them and, and been in, on, inside them. I became fascinated by this, so I actually set up a little group in my dormitory in my preparatory school. And every night we would look at planet Mars. He claimed they were coming from Mars and Venus. So I th we th 
I thought, well, look, if they're coming from Mars, the most obvious thing is to look in the direction of Mars. So we had a little rotor of um, boys who would look all through the night at Mars through binoculars to see if they could see anything coming from the direction of Mars. Again, a very naive experiment. I think we gave up after a few months because we didn't, we didn't, um, we didn't see anything. And I became very disillusioned, especially since I thought, well, if, if these um, beings are in telepathic contact, then why, how come they haven't reacted in some way and, and, and maintained evidence? Well, after that, I'm afraid, I, I, later I became rather skeptical of Adamski's uh, accounts. I think somebody pointed out that his UFOs were rather similar to some contraption on an ice cream mach making machine and, and things like that. So I've, I no longer believe in Adamski's stories. However, the, that's not to say I'm not believing in UFOs. But the question is, I, I mean, I, I, I remain um, agnostic on the issue. But the question is, if UFOs do exist, is it part of psychical research? If UFOs really are physical machines which, which come from another stellar system, then it's not part of psychical research anyway. It's just part of straight astronomy. On the other hand, if they're in some sense they are not physical, maybe, maybe, they really, maybe they're real, but using some even hard-dimensional mode of transport or wormholes or something like that then you are in the domain what might be called psychical and 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 you have to say there is some possible link between psychical phenomena and 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 ufos so it's a very interesting question but of course there are a lot of phenomena like that there are a lot of phenomena which at first you might think are are physical phenomena a psychical psychical phenomena but tend up turn out to have a simple physical explanation let me go into a bit of a digression with you about it. I, I think uh, it might be profitable. Uh, when I was a graduate student, I uh, did a lengthy study of a man who exhibited a lot of psychokinetic ability, apparent psychokinetic ability. He would send letters out to researchers saying he was going to produce various large-scale phenomena, power blackouts, uh, including UFO sightings. That, that did manifest. And um, at the time, one of my uh, professors was Robert Morris, who became the head of the uh, parapsychology unit at Edinburgh, uh, a, a man for whom I, to this day, have enormous respect. But when I began to report to my faculty committee that uh, I'm investigating this person who, who is able to produce or claims he can produce, he says, I will produce a UFO sighting. And then a UFO sighting occurs uh, when he says and where he says it will happen, even uh, within great precision, like within a few days and within he, he at one time he told me he would make a UFO sighting seen by hundreds of people photographed and that the photograph would be published on the front page of a local newspaper. That happened within days. And uh, when I reported this to Robert Morris, amongst others, he dropped out of my committee. He said he just, parapsychology should have nothing to do with this. Well, the trouble is, Jeff, that it's true that um, a lot of people will assume that UFOs are automatically, you know, 
not respectable. It's 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 regarded as cranky by some people. Now, I don't think that's fair, but of course that's true of a lot of subjects which which go under the heading of sci. I mean, as as we know, some people will reject anything labeled sci as crazy. Um, but I th suppose it's true to say that the topic of UFOs is more likely to be labeled crazy um, than maybe the topic of, of telepathy. And so I think one finds within the parapsychology community that one has to be very defensive. One is trying to convince one's colleagues that one's studying respectable phenomena. And therefore, you don't want to go to extremes by talking about the even more heretic phenomena. So, for example, if you're studying telepathy and clairvoyance, psychokinesis, you know, that could conceivably have a, a an explanation within conventional physics or within conventional psychology. And, and that as a parapsychologist is what you're trying to convince your colleagues of, that this is a, is a respectable phenomena. But the trouble is other phenomena sound much more questionable and more likely to attract um, eccentric thinkers, if you like. And I think UFOs are, are, are like that. Um, you could say the same about um, spiritualism as well. A lot of people would avoid having anything to do with spiritualism because that is thought to be associated with people who are deluded or frauds or whatever, or even the whole domain of mystical experience. So I think I find within, within the psychical research community, we talked about what is respectable and what is not respectable. People have their own views, and very often those views are a result of the fact that you're trying to convince your colleagues that you're respectable. And, and that's why, for example, a lot of parapsychologists are not so interested in mystical experience. Personally, I think there is an important link between psychical experiences and mystical experiences. I don't think you can draw a firm line between them. Nevertheless, I think a lot of parapsychologists know if they start talking about mystical experiences, their other scientific colleagues who go to say, this guy's crazy. And so I, I, regard, I, I say I remain agnostic on the issue of, of UFOs, but I also understand why from a sort of sociology of science perspective, some parapsychologists want to steer clear. I, I understand that as well, I, but I also think it's very unfortunate. Uh, maybe a good case in point uh, to think about this would be Sir William Crookes, who, uh, if I remember correctly, he was the president of the Royal Scientific Society. He had achieved the pinnacle of scientific respectability, but as soon as he began reporting spirit materializations and uh, macro-psychokinetic phenomenon occur occurring under laboratory conditions uh, he was rejected well that's true if you look at these if you look at the physicists who made a big contribution to the subject they 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 were all very eminent physicists but as soon as they started getting into psychical research they, they encountered a lot of flack and so crooks for example i believe he discovered the the element thallium and then when he started getting interested in spiritualism, some of his colleagues said this was a result of thallium poisoning. Uh, but it's, it's true. And, and quite a lot of the early um, 
psychical researchers, physicists who are psychical researchers, try to get their colleagues interested in the subject, would try to publish papers in Nature, for example, or, or organize meetings of the British Association on the subject, and they were nearly always rejected uh, by their colleagues because it, it was just uh, one step too far. I mean, Sir Oliver Lodge is another. He was the president of, uh, if I recall, the British Scientific Society and uh, ha had reached the pinnacle of uh, scientific respectability. Of course, he, he was a very eminent physicist. I mean, um, Sir Oliver Lodge, he got his knighthood and, and he rose right to the heights. But of course, that doesn't mean to say that people took seriously his belief in spiritualism, for example. It's a strange thing about Oliver Lodge. Oliver Lodge was very much my hero, Jeff, because he was a physicist. And um, But the strange thing, you think of Sir Oliver Lodge as from the Victorian age, okay? The, the archetypal Victorian physicist. I was amazed to discover that Oliver Lodge died in the 1940s, 1940. And I was born in 1949. And I suddenly realized, my goodness, I lived in the same decade as Oliver Lodge. And I mention that because, um, you know, one always thinks of these early physicists as, as being a bygone age. And it really wasn't a bygone age. The whole history of the subject is, you know, we've only been, the society's only been going for 130 odd years. And, well, a bit more than that, nearly 140 years. But it's a very short time. And so these people who were there at the start really were, well, they even overlap with me. And it makes you realize that the subject is very young. As I recall, Oliver Lodge was instrumental in, in funding uh, the research by Eddington that confirmed Einstein's theory. Oh, he was all involved in those sorts of experiments. And, but also, of course, he was a pioneer in the whole area of, of radio communication. And and, and 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 he made a crucial contribution um, in in that area, and and all of these physicists made a, a crucial contribution. But um, I mean, in this subject, it helps them. I've got you want to make your reputation as a physicist before you start making pronouncements about psychical research, because otherwise people won't take, if you start talking about psychical research when you're very young, you'll never get to becoming taken seriously. So this is why it's important to establish your reputation and then start talking about these things. I mean, in some sense, I suppose I've, I've gained a certain reputation within in conventional physics, so people don't think I'm completely crazy. Once I start talking more publicly about my interest in, in, in psychical research, they'll probably start saying, oh, well, he, he's got old, he's gone crazy. But I mean, actually, I'm, you know, and I know, I've always been interested in the subject. I think earlier you mentioned that people attribute Oliver Lodge's interest in spiritualism to uh, the death of his son, Raymond, uh, and, and apparent spirit communications from Raymond after he died in the First World War. But I, I gather, and I think I read this in one of your papers, that Lodge had actually published uh, studies relating to the uh, empirical evidence for survival long before his son died. 
Oh, yes, yes. I mean, he was interested in these issues long before his son died. Um, it just obviously gave him a sort of, I suppose, a stronger emotional reason to, to pursue his interests after his son did die. Um, the question of survival has, has always been of interest to, to some psychical researchers. I mean, as I said, it's not so interesting to many parapsychologists, but is it, it is of interest to psychical researchers. And especially if you um, look at the founders of the society, I mean, obviously Sidgwick and Myers and Gurney were the three people who founded the society. And by 1900, they'd all died. And, and so there was a lot of interest in whether they were going to communicate in some way. And as I'm sure you, you know, I mean, there's the whole history of the correspondences where allegedly Myers was communicating with mediums to try and prove, after all, he spent most of his life trying to prove these phenomena were true, so it made sense that after his death he would try and provide some information by the cross-correspondences to confirm his survival. But, I mean, I, my own my own view, I remain agnostic. I mean, I do not believe that consciousness dies with the brain. The question of what part of your personality survives, in what sense you survive, is a very subtle question. I mean, it's. I mean, the, the idea that it's just um, another Bernard Carr is going to survive is just like this one. It's, to me, seems rather naive. But I can believe some information persists. But the question is, what is the nature of identity? What does it mean to say that you are Jeff Mishlov and that I am Bernard Carr? In what way are we separate? I have, I have to, to me, the crucial question in understanding consciousness is what is the nature of identity? And I personally, in my own picture, there is only one consciousness and we are all little consciousnesses which are fragments of that big consciousness. And so the real puzzle is why have we fragmented? Why are you, Jeff, different from me, Bernard? What explains that? And that, to me, is almost the most fundamental question. What is the nature of identity? And, and I believe that there can be level, different levels of consciousness, different levels of identity. So that we, for example, we, we seem to be separate, but we may be part of a higher, higher order consciousness, a higher order identity. And at that level, of course, we would no longer, our individual self would no longer exist. Um, and so really, that is to me the, the crucial question. Uh, you can believe in survival of consciousness without necessarily believing in survival of your individual spirit. And, and I think if you look at the evidence from psychical research, from the study of mediumistic communications, I think there is, on balance, good evidence for some sort of survival. Um, but that's my personal opinion. Um, but on the other hand, when you ask, what do you mean by survival? It's a very difficult question. You know, philosophers like C.D. Broad spent a lot of time trying to answer that. The nature of identity is a real mystery. And so it's, it, to say I survive, the question is, what is I? What is the nature of the I which survives? And I think I said at the beginning, do you have a view in which when you die, your your eye is preserved and just you go floating off in another vehicle, another body, or or do you just become part of a bigger eye? 
and and that's to me the, the the really interesting question which of and it may be it may just be a transition it may well be that you go through a temporary stage where your little eye survives as an independent eye maybe it gets reincarnated maybe it goes somewhere else but then eventually maybe it it gets absorbed into the bigger eye well, I know you have interacted extensively with uh, Professor Ian Stevenson, who really initiated the modern research era into reincarnation. Yes, I, I spent a summer with Ian in, I think, 1981. I'd, um, I'd done some experiments. I, I met Ian Stevenson on one of his visits to Cambridge. He, I was introduced to him by Donald West. Donald West was at Darwin College, and, and Ian Stevenson used to visit Darwin College. And uh, so Donald introduced me to Ian Stevenson, and I was really impressed with Ian Stevenson. I mean, obviously because of his work, I thought his, his, he devoted his life to studying children who had memories of, of previous lives. And, and I was really impressed with the, the scholarship and, and, and the effort which he put into that. But over and above that, I was just, I was so influenced by him. He, he was one of these people who really impressed me with his intellectual integrity and, and really inspired me to, to, to stay in the field, not professionally. I mean, I was at one point considering becoming a parapsychologist, but it was because of people like Ian Stevenson that I very much wanted to pursue the field. Uh, he invited me to... Um, Charlottesville one summer to write up an experiment. Um, this is an experiment I did um, uh, well in, in 19, about 1980. I don't know if, if I should talk about this. This was an experiment with what Ishiara cards to test whether ESP is due to telepathy or clairvoyance. Should I explain those experiments? Uh, oh, yes, this is a fascinating study. Um, as you know, one of the interesting issues with ESP is, is the information, if, if, if I look at a card and, and, and you can see what I'm looking at, is that information through telepathy, in the sense that you're contacting my mind, or is it through clairvoyance? Are you sort of seeing what the card is through clairvoyance? And one way... Of, of testing this is to use Ishiara cards as targets and the idea is that you have numbers numbers are one to five and they are the targets for this ESP experiment but the point about Ishiara cards is that if you are red green color blind you can see a different number okay so if you're normal you have normal sight you will see the number two but if you're color blind red green color blind you'll see the number five and so i'd done these experiments in in trinity in about 19 1982 i think and in these experiments the agent was color blind the, the person looking at the card was color blind and the recipient the, the subject trying to guess the card was was color normal and therefore if they if they were getting the information from telepathy, they would see the number five. If they were getting the information through clairvoyance, they would see the number two. And so that was the basis of the experiment. And of course, some of the numbers both would see the same, but both the colorblind and the normal person would see the same. 
And so I, I spent a summer doing these experiments and actually got rather significant results. I was really rather pleased about it. And so I decided to to write up the, the results. And Ian Siemenson invited me to uh, Charlottesville to write up the experiments. Because he was also very interested in telepathy, as I recall. He was very interested in telepathy. He wrote books on telepathic impressions. I mean, he wasn't only interested in, in reincarnation. That was his... His, most of his body of work is on reincarnation, but of course he was generally interested in, in psychical research and evidence for survival and all sorts of things. So he, he invited me over to Charlottesville and I had, a, I had a wonderful summer. And then of course I got to meet Ian and some of his, his, his colleagues, Emily Cook, Carlos Alvarado was visiting that summer. So it was a wonderful introduction. But also, of course, I got very interested in the work he was doing. And uh, and that also got me interested in in issues to do uh, you know survival and reincarnation because he was also interested in, in mediums as well. So that really broadened my um, interest in the subject. So he had a really Ian Stevenson had a a profound effect on me. I would say I had a great an enormous respect for him. How do you think the research on reincarnation is viewed today? Well, of course, it depends who you, who you talk to. I mean, I would say the, there are different types of evidence for reincarnation. For example, you have to, you've got evidence that apparently comes from hypnotherapy, where people regress under hypnosis into past lives. I have to say that I, I, I'm a little bit skeptical about that. I, I mean, I, I told you before, I never believe or disbelieve anything in this subject, but I'm not so impressed with people who, who regress under hypnosis because you, how can you be sure that it's not their imagination? On the other hand, we all know there are cases where, you know, people seem to have conveyed information. I've always been more impressed, though, with the evidence that comes from, from Ian Stevenson because, I mean he's followed that up so rigorously and and there's no doubt these children do seem to have memories of a previous life but and what's fascinating and it's the fact there is a, a uniformity among the cases which is so impressive i mean the memories are just there for a short time they nearly always fade by the time you get to about seven um most of the people who died are people who died had violent deaths things like that most uh, interesting of all to my mind is Ian's work on on the people who have got actual physical marks which represent the way they died. I mean, you know, he wrote a whole volume on on the on the the birthmarks. So that, for example, and and those birthmarks in some way correlate to how the person died. So the guy might have been he he has a he has a, a birthmark on his head, and he remembers in his previous life having been shot in the head. Or he has a, or he has a, a an injury. He has a deformed leg and remembers in his previous life um, having been run over by a train and losing his leg. Well, of course, you could say this was all imagination. But Ian actually went back to the original records of of, of, of the people when they died and can, and correlated, you know, the the photograph of the of the person who died with the birthmark. And and I found that a fascinating study. So. For me, that is the – now, what it means, of course, you have to be very careful. I don't think Ian himself ever said this proves reincarnation. I mean, I think he would 
he said it shows there is some communication of information, if you like, somehow going from one life to another life. Um, as you know, I have an interest in Buddhism, so I do actually have a, I'm quite open to the concept of reincarnation. Um, I, again, I'm not going to say I definitely believe in reincarnation, but nevertheless, if you were to ask me personally, you know, to lay bets, I, I would say that's the form of survival I most favor, some form of, of reincarnation. But, but, but of course, I'm not going to say I'm, <laughs> that's definitely true. I mean, and, and I'm not going to say it's wishful thinking because I don't particularly want to be reborn. But nevertheless, that's, if, 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 I'm, if I was pushed, I would say that's the form of survival I probably most favor, some concept of, of reincarnation. And, and if there is evidence for it, I would say the, the, the best evidence comes from Ian Stevenson's work and, of course, the follow-up work from, from the group that he left, you know, Bruce Grayson and... Um, Jim Tucker and all, and all those people who are continuing the important work. Well, we've covered a wide range of phenomenon today, uh, Bernard, and uh, I'm looking forward to many future conversations with you because this is such a vast topic and, and there's so much to explore. I think next time we get together, uh, we'll be talking about uh, hyperspace, and I'm pretty sure that uh, – when we begin to address uh, the questions of hyperspace and consciousness, we're also going to touch upon the important question of uh, personal identity and the meaning of identity that you raised earlier. I, yes, I, I look forward to talking about the nature of consciousness and the nature of time, because I think the nature of time is fundamental. And, 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 and I want to try and explain how this all relates to this hyperspatial approach. But I mean, so, yes, so next time we can talk more about the theoretical sides. I, I, we've spoken very much about experiments today. Um, I also would like to say something about precognition. That's, to me, one of the most fascinating phenomena. And, um, and I, as I said, although it goes against the grain if you're a physicist, nevertheless, I do think the evidence for precognition is strong, and that's based on my own experiences. So um, I, I think the heart of a theory of psi, especially a, a theory of psi related to physics, is going to be understanding the nature of time. Because time is something which is clearly physicists are interested in, and it's something which psychical researchers are interested in. So uh, I, will be, I will look forward to talking about how time fits into these hyperspatial models next time. Well, I'm, I'm very delighted and honored that uh, we're able to have a series of conversations because uh, there's so many interpenetrating issues and you have such a good grasp of, of all of them. Uh, Bernard, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you very much, Jeff, and I look forward to our third conversation before too long. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.